Would you grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 13? Exodus chapter 13. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, a hard black, uh, uh, black hardcover one. There we go. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, I would love for you to take that one home with you. We really want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God, and if you don't have it, uh, you do now. That one's yours. We would love for you to take that and uh, be able to read the Word of God together with us. So uh, back in 1985, one of the most insightful pieces of social commentary to the American cultural experiment was published. The uh, publication date was intentional. It was a year after the popularized uh, George Orwell book, 1984. Uh, In 1985, a commentary was published about the way uh, society was operating, and uh, it, it, in the introduction, contrasted Orwell's work, 1984, with a lesser known but also kind of future dystopian vision of society by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. And Neil Postman, as he wrote the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, still an impressively timely book today in 2022, as he wrote back in 1985, he compared and contrasted the two. Listen to what he says. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, but in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. 1985, fascinating. Uh, the, the whole concept that he's laying out is so timely for us today. Listen as he continues. Orwell feared, that those, uh, feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley fears those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. I can't even say that. That's in the book, by the way. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain, In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. It's hard to find a more apt critique of our society than Postman's work from 1985, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and a more apt vision of what we are becoming than Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World. The struggle is one that is ancient. 3,500 years ago, God in Exodus 13 warned of the same thing, and effectively it's this. We can't simply be freed from oppression, but we need to be freed for something else. We, We can't simply be removed from oppression because we're still ourselves. We're still the problem. Exodus chapter 13 is the hinge in the Exodus narrative. The first 12 and a half chapters are God bringing freedom to the people. But the rest of the book, and the argument could be made really from Exodus 13 all the way through the end of the book of Joshua, the the argument could be made that it's all about formation. Freedom 
leads to formation. And when we engage Exodus chapter 13, I, I think we engage to me what is the, the real reason to study the book of Exodus. It's vitally important, as we've looked at, for us to understand the freedom that we've been given. But more important that we take that freedom and move into the pathway that God intends for us. God doesn't zap us up to heaven when we're saved. God leaves us here to be formed and to be an influence for the world around us. And that's the heart of Exodus chapter 13. So I want you to listen. Cindy's going to come and read just a few verses, but key verses. Exodus 13, 17 to 22. Listen to the heart of God as he speaks to us. Good morning. When Pharaoh let the, people, let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God let the people around the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. <coughs> Moses told, took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped in Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Thank you, Cindy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, take these words and shape us. Remind us once again, as you so faithfully have, that this story is our story. And so, God, I submit all of my capacities to you, would you use my words for your purposes? May the words that come from my flesh and my strength fall to the ground and be forgotten. But may the words that come from your spirit be part of the way that we are shaped and formed into your image. Do this work by your spirit, God. We rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Easy to read past these uh, five or six verses, um, but if I was to anchor the purpose of the reason why I felt that God led us to the book of Exodus, this would be the passage. This would be the central turning point. This is where God says, I didn't simply free you from sin, but I'm forming you as a people. There's, there's work to be done past the idea of redemption. And so that's what we're going to dig into, this idea of formation. So uh, this morning, we're going to try to go big picture, and then literally the next eight months are going to be kind of unpacking the way this formation process works. But I want to look today at the path to formation, the way that God leads into formation, uh, the why of formation, why God does what he does, and then the how, how, how he does it. Big picture level, how does God work? So path of formation, why of formation, and the how of formation. So it starts out uh, real simple. Verse 17 says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that way was near. Anybody ever been in one of those situations where God seems to always take the long way around? 
If you followed Jesus for any period of time, you've probably experienced this. If we were going to go around, many of you could tell stories of like, man, I, like I, I saw where I was supposed to go, but man, it took me months, years to get there. God will often take what feels like a very circuitous route to get us to where we, we need to go. Um, when my sister and I were growing up, we would go different places with my parents, and the, the, the worst words for us to hear as we sat in the back seat uh, after we visited some place or another, the worst thing for us to hear was when my dad said, hey, on the way home, I know a shortcut. That was terrifying. Because the shortcuts were always two to three times longer than the like long cuts. You know, the, the normal path was so much easier than the shortcut, but the shortcut always took us all kinds of interesting places that he wanted to see, or maybe he had no idea where he was going. I'm not really sure. But there was always this kind of long path around. God does that. He does, does that to us all the time. Where we, we see where we're going. That's what's happening in, uh, in Israel. They're coming out of the border of Egypt, and they're literally a couple weeks journey, uh, if that, from the promised land. And God says, eh, I have a better plan. I, I, I'm going to take you uh, in a different direction. One of the things I see all the time as a pastor, particularly as a pastor of a relatively young church overall, is that there are a lot of us that long for formation, long for spiritual maturity, long for the wisdom that comes from walking with Jesus. But we're not committed to the process of gaining that wisdom. So what happens, uh, I, I don't know exactly how it works in each individual person, but it always seems to me sitting from the outside is that um, th there are people who literally like they put their Bible under their pillow at night, they lay down and they hope that osmosis does its work, like it's going to absorb into me overnight. And um, if I just pray consistently for like a, a really long time, like every day for like a week, I'll be a saint by the end of the week, right? Like it, it'll happen really quickly. But see, here's the thing, like spiritual formation always takes time. Like, there's, there's just no shortcuts. The, the process of being formed by the Spirit is a long-term process, and it, it, there, there are no shortcuts. You can't get there more quickly. You just have to go through the process. We uh, use this diagram uh, that shows the spiritual formation model. Uh, you've probably seen this lots of times before. Uh, we talk about teaching and community and practice empowered by the Holy Spirit. But down at the bottom, we don't talk as much about that bottom section where it says spiritual formation, intentional spiritual formation happens over time through the hard knocks of life. There is no quick path to spiritual formation. It just takes time. And that time... Uh, mixed with the suffering that comes with life, just the, the brokenness and the difficulty. What you're going to see as the Israelite people are journeying through the Arabian Peninsula and moving towards the promised land is that um, in, in a variety of different hard knocks of life, God's forming them and shaping them, and he does the same thing with us. It requires time as well as effort and discipline, and there's no way to speed up the process. Spiritual formation takes time. That's the path of formation. Our tendency is to do what you're going to see the people of Israel do over and over and over again, which is knowing that they're free. There, there are these, uh, th these patterns deep in their psyche that draw them back. It happens to us all the time. So uh, let's stick with the people of Israel for a second. They leave Egypt and... For, Although they are now completely free, they have spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. 
And so while they're thrilled to be away from the oppressing abuse of the Egyptian empire, they're used to certain things. They're used to a, a, a structure and a rhythm to the way their day goes. They're used to a, a pattern of living where they have certain homes that they can live in and certain places that they're allowed to go and certain places that they're not allowed to go. There's certain structures that are part of their life. Yeah, they get abused along the way, they get oppressed along the way, but they also get food, right? They also get some kind of an immediate uh, need met. And so as quickly as the middle of Exodus chapter 14, you're going to see the people of Israel saying to Moses, why did we even let you take us out? Like, we want to go back to Egypt. Like, why, did, why would we ever have wanted to lead, leave slavery? Pharaoh was so good to us. It's crazy. Until we start to think about the way that our patterns work. Like, how many of us, freed from sin, knowing that we're free from sin, experience something akin to hunger, a, a, a longing in our spirit for something to be satisfied, and we know that going back to the very thing that oppressed us will never actually satisfy us. But we still do, because we still have it in our psyche. It's still part of our pattern. It's still part of the rhythm of life. It's easy. The path to formation takes time because it has to move out of us. You could say it this way. It took a few months and 10 plagues for God to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 plus years for God to get Egypt out of Israel. In fact, the argument could be made, they never fully got Egypt out of Israel. That process is one that just takes time. There is no substitute for it. There is a pattern that has to be uh, engaged, and when we don't engage it, we know that as we walk back into that very thing that oppressed us, it will ultimately not satisfy us. And yet, like the nation of Israel, we constantly go back because it's part of our pattern. And for some of you, you think like, you can just stop right now because I need to go to the altar. I'm just going to ask you to hold that thought because some other people need to go to the altar too. So just give, give, give a minute. So the path of formation is one that takes time. It, it, just, it requires us to step back from that pattern and to establish a new pattern of living. But it's not just the path that we want to look at. In the second half of verse 17, uh, God gives the why of formation. So it says, when God let the, Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that way is near, so a different path. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So why does he take them the long way? Well, the reason very clearly given by God is, if I don't take you the long way, you're going to see war and you're going to turn back. You're, you're not prepared yet. You're not, you're not ready yet. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because they leave, uh, the scriptures tell us, in battle formation, so that's in verse 18, that they're leaving ready to go. But way more important than that, God just released them from the most powerful empire ever seen on the face of the earth as helpless slaves who don't know how to battle. Like, God is going to be the one going before them. Most historians would say it's within two weeks that they see the first battle. And honestly, the battle with Egypt is going to be like momentarily, right? In a couple of hours. And so like, it can't just be battle. God's fighting for them. And it can't be that they're going to be prepared. Like all of a sudden they're going to go from a ragtag bunch of slaves to an elite fighting force in two weeks. Like that's not happening. What's, what's the deal? What God's saying is, you need to learn how to be free. 
You need to learn what it means to engage freedom. And so that begs the question for us, what's it mean to be free? And for many of us, you've heard me say this before, and I'll keep saying it because I think it's such a deep misunderstanding for us, our version of freedom is a lack of constraint, meaning I can do anything I want whenever I want. I'm not constrained. So that, if, if, if I'm not constrained, therefore I'm free. And I would simply offer that that's a great 21st century American definition of freedom, but that has nothing to do with the biblical concept of freedom. And I would also offer that even secular people know that that's true. So uh, you may know the name David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace is far from a follower of Jesus. He did not have, uh, he's dead now, but did not have a biblical worldview by any means. And yet, Wallace, uh, commenting on the idea of freedom, saw this. Listen to what he said. American economic and cultural systems that work very well in terms of selling people products and keeping the economy thriving do not work as well when it comes to educating children or helping us help each other know how to live. And to be happy, if that word means anything. Clearly, it means something different from whatever I want to do. I want to take this cup and throw it right now. I have every right to. I should. Keep going. We see it with children. That's not happiness. That feeling of having to obey every impulse and gratify every desire seems to me to be a strange kind of slavery. Nobody talks about it as such, though. That's fascinating. Here is an incredibly secular person with no sense of Christian worldview who says, literally doing anything I want to do whenever I want to do it, that's what it means to be a toddler. That's not what it means to be free. It seems to me, he says, to be a strange kind of slavery, to be just freed from constraint, to not have to do anything I want to do, to be able to do anything I want to do. It's not freedom. It's a strange kind of slavery. So if that's not freedom, the key question is, what is freedom? What, what, what is it to be free? And I would offer a summary of the biblical definition this way. Freedom is the ability to become the person that God has made us to be. The ability to be formed into the people that God is calling us to be. Jesus said it this way in John 10.10, 10, um, that, that he has come that we would have life to the full, or in some translations, abundant life. That we would become the people that he's called us to be. That there would be a formational aspect that comes because of our freedom. So when we're freed from sin, one of the things that that means is we don't have to sin anymore. But the other thing that that means is now we're able to be formed according to the way that God has called us because we're not bound to sin anymore. So that freedom is not simply like, okay, I'm free, now I'm good. But there's a, there's a movement forward that comes out of that freedom that, that uh, invites me into being formed the way that God would call me to be formed. So uh, the writers of the book Echoes of Exodus uh, say it this way. It is easy for us to forget this in an age where freedom is understood as merely being freedom from, from oppression, from constraint, or whatever. This aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for, for worship, for flourishing, for growth and obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be freed from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, 
triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for them to find delight in serving the new one. Fascinating idea, vitally important idea. A quote of Bob Dylan in there, by the way, if anybody's following along. Got to serve somebody, right? Um, but what, what, he, what he's saying, what they're saying is, it, we need to find not just freedom from the old master, but delight in serving the new master. The, the call for us is not simply to be free so we're not constrained to sin, but the call for us is to be mature, to not just follow Jesus because we're supposed to, not just follow Jesus because uh, that's the, the pattern of the world around us or uh, the, the best pathway to the life that we think that we want or um, it, it's the best option that we have among many. The reason to follow Jesus is because we delight in serving him. And that's a mature position. That's a position that only comes over time. Now, one of the great travesties of our culture, particularly our church culture, is that we've gotten to a place where we've said if we can't do it perfectly, we won't do it at all. And so that has, over the course of decades, taken a toll on us. Now, um, we, we weren't really able to really clearly see that until the last two years. And in the last two years, as we've looked back, particularly among uh, those who are looking at the uh, American church and the Western church, they've described what has unfolded over the last couple years as a crisis of non-discipleship. A crisis of non-discipleship. Basically, what they're saying is, what we've seen is that people were, uh, were followers of Jesus because of the habits that they had formed. They get up and go to church on Sunday morning. That's what they do. They go to a small group on Tuesday night. That's what they do. They uh, read the Bible because that's what they do. But not because they are completely tied in to the teachings of Jesus and the forward move of the kingdom. So to say it in uh, the language of that last quote, the, the, they're doing what they're supposed to do, but they're not delighting in serving the new master. This idea of the crisis of non-discipleship can be laid out pretty clearly in this idea of uh, justification versus sanctification. So I know those are, those are theological words, but bear with me for a minute. Justification is basically the idea that we've been made right with God. Vitally important key to salvation. We are justified by faith in Jesus. When, when Jesus comes to work in our lives, we're justified. We're made right with him. But sanctification happens from the point of justification forward as we become more like Jesus. We increasingly take on the attributes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. What we say at York Alliance is uh, we, we spend time with Jesus in order to become more like Jesus, in order to do the things that Jesus did in the world around us. That's the sanctification path. That, that path, discipleship, apprenticeship, the, the movement toward maturity, that, that's the pathway that we're all as followers of Jesus called to be on. The challenge is because we know that we're not going to be like Jesus this side of heaven, there's all kinds of people who just say, eh, why worry about sanctification? I'm not going to be like Jesus. I can't be perfect, and so therefore, I just won't try. I'll just wait. God will do what he does. Like, I'll just kind of, uh, I'll wait for him to do it. The problem with that is that we don't do that in any other area of life. Like, I will never play basketball like LeBron James. 
That doesn't mean I don't shoot. It doesn't mean I don't dribble. It doesn't mean I don't play basketball. I just, I, I'm never going to be that good, right? But it doesn't, doesn't stop me from doing it. I'm never going to have the blend between uh, wisdom and knowledge and, and cultural commentary that Tim Keller has. But it doesn't mean that I stop reading and stop trying to engage and think and teach. I just, I, just because I'm not going to get there doesn't mean I don't try. It doesn't mean I don't keep going. People don't play, learn to play the piano and then they look at Pastor Tim and they're like, well, I can't do it like him, so forget it. I'm just not going to do it. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, you don't do that in any area of life. In the same way, we need to be people who are pursuing Christ-likeness, even with the understanding that we won't be fully like him until we get to heaven. So, of course, there's a great Dallas Willard quote about that, so let me show you that quote. Here's what Willard says in The Spirit of the Disciplines. Grace does not mean that sufficient strength and insight will automatically be infused into our being in the moment of need. Abundant evidence for this claim is available precisely in the experience of any Christian. We only have to look at the facts. A baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his, of his body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise in godly living. What Willard's saying is this. If you live life with a mindset, when I get into the situation, I'm just gonna do the things that Jesus did. What would Jesus do? Well, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do that when I get there. And what Willard's saying is, if, if the rest of your life is not training for that moment, you have zero chance of being able to do what Jesus would do in that moment. Because when you hit crisis, you don't automatically act like Jesus. You automatically act like you. And so that the why of formation is not so that they would be prepared for battle so that they would have sharpened spears and could march in, in order, that they would be prepared for battle so that when they hit crisis, they would actually trust in the source of their victory, which is God and not them. And see, for, for so many of us, that formation never happens in us. That, that, that struggle to become mature and prepared for, uh, for what the, the crisis that, uh, that will come in front of us. We just never get there. And so if you think of it this way, uh, that those first 13 chapters of Exodus, God, as God frees his people, that's leading up for us to the moment of salvation. But now, from here forward, God is going to start forming his people. He's going to start shaping his people. From this moment until the end of this series, and I would argue all the way through the end of the book of Joshua, there's a divine spiritual formation model that's laid out before us. What God is doing is step by step forming his people according to his sovereign will and power. And he's doing that as they submit themselves to him, sometimes willingly, sometimes with a lot of grumbling, just like us. That, that why process is God saying, uh, you're, you're, not, you're freed, but you're not yet formed. And so I need to begin the process of forming you. So how does it work? Well, the how is a tricky one, one that's going to take us months to unpack. But if we step back and just go big picture, we see in uh, the end of this passage in Exodus 13, the answer to the question, let me read for you starting in verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day 
and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. How does God form his people? He forms his people by his very presence, by his leadership, by his spirit, by his power. And so we can get into this whole process of like, it isn't the work of becoming like Jesus, the discipline and the practice of becoming like Jesus, isn't that just a, a new form of legalism? Like, uh, if we're saved by grace, doesn't Paul say in Galatians chapter 3 that we're also sanctified by grace? So why would we do all of this work? Why would we step into this? Well, I, I think we, we see the answer right here in this text. Uh, God himself is leading us into the work of salvation, but we have to be willing participants. The way Willard would say it is, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So they've not earned their maturity, but they do, we do, put effort into our maturity. Now you might say, um, I, I read that and I read this Old Testament account and I think, well sure, if I can't, like walked out of church and there was a big pillar of fire over in West York, I'd follow the path, I'd go to West York, like, that's fine. If there's a big pillar of fire that's kind of moving across the Atlantic, I must be called to Europe or Africa or wherever I'm called, like fine. I'll, if there's a, there's a pillar of fire, I'd follow it. But there's not a pillar of fire. It's not that easy. I can't just follow where God's, uh, God's leading. Well, um, I, I think actually our path is better than that. So if you want to stick your finger in uh, Exodus 13 and turn to Acts chapter 2, um, also put it on the screen uh, in just a second. So uh, Acts, Acts chapter 2 is coming right after the ascension of Jesus. The, the church, the early church is waiting for uh, the Spirit to come upon them. And the beginning of Acts chapter 2 it says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Tongues of fire over each person's head, or you might say, individual pillars of fire. Each one of them being led, not corporately, so that we all with one mind and one spirit, regardless of all of our individual circumstances, go to West York because that's where the pillar of fire is. But we individually led by the pillar of fire, follow God where he leads us. That, that act of formation, the process of formation, is grounded in the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's still our effort. We're doing work to be a part of it. We're, we're, so if you go back to the, uh, the, the graphic we looked at a minute ago about the spiritual formation model, you see uh, teaching and community and practice as ways that we, with effort, place ourselves in a position to be led by God. So we, we control the kind of teaching we're listening to. We control the kind of inputs that are coming into us, what news sources we're listening to, the way that we're engaging media, the way that we're engaging the world around us, the amount of time that we spend on various uh, social media outlets, news outlets, all of those kinds of, we, we curate that. That's part of what we do. We choose the community that's around us. We choose the people who are influences in our lives. And it's vitally important for us to say in this cultural moment that that's not just the people who are right in front of us. Those are also the people that you're following on Twitter 
Those are also the people that you're engaging through podcasts or you're engaging through uh, any kind of media. All of those people become the community that form us. And the practice, the habits that we're in, the things that we do. So if, if your uh, first thing you do in the morning is check your email and the last thing you do at night is scroll Instagram, are you telling me that doesn't form you? Right? Those are, those are formational things. Those are things that we choose. But in the center of all of that is the Holy Spirit, the pillar of fire. God leading us and using those things that we place there before him for his purposes. I'd say it this way. All of the best teaching surrounded by all of the, the, the most mature and healthiest community engaged with a high level of discipline and a spiritual practice apart from the power of the Holy Spirit only creates self-righteousness. It doesn't create maturity. But when the pillar of fire shows up, now we're formed. The best illustration I know is the illustration of a bonfire. What we are called to do as the people of God is to bring all of the kindling around and stack it up. We, we, we bring all of the stuff from here and there and everywhere and we get it all in one place and we make a, make a big pile, make sure it's dry, we make sure it's ready to go. But the fire comes from God alone. Any fire that we try to start will burn out. But the fire that comes from God lasts. And when he catches that, that pile on fire, all we have to do is feed it. All we have to do is just bring more stuff. Continue to give it more fuel so that it'll continue to burn bright. The way that God forms us, just like he did Israel, is through the presence of his spirit. We have to be willing to follow. For many of us, we are concerned about how we lead our lives, how we lead our families, how we lead the people around us. And the nation of Israel, one of the very first things they learned in leading Egypt, leaving Egypt, is that they're not leading, they're following. What we're called to learn is that we're not called to lead, called to follow, called to be people who reliant on the Spirit, learning to hear the voice of God, and allowing Him to form and shape us. And so I want to encourage you to look back just think with me. Uh, maybe even just close your eyes and imagine. Two years ago, uh, we were in the middle of February 2020. The idea of a worldwide pandemic was something that had been talked about as part of TED Talks and had been written about, but um, had never been seen in almost all of our lifetimes. And then, early March hit, as COVID started to spread, and all of the, the foundations felt like they started to shake. And what happened for so many of us was that we found ourselves on one pole or the other. We found ourselves either responding in fear, like I, I, I don't know what to do, everything's shaking, I'm concerned, I wanna find things I can control. Or we found ourselves responding in a desire for a, a, a freedom from restraint. Uh, freedom that's not biblical freedom, but a freedom that says, I, I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to be told what to do. But very few of us found ourselves in a place where this was yet another part of the formational process. We were just saying, God, keep forming me. Keep leading me. Keep guiding me. 
that pathway of formation is one that we have to consistently come back to and trust God leading us into as his people. And so I want to invite you to just consider where that is for you. As we today embark on the second part of this Exodus journey, we're going to start to look at narrative after narrative that says, um, what happens when the people don't have the water they need? What happens when the people are cornered by an army? What happens when people don't have food? What happens when people uh, feel like they don't have any hope and they need God to come through? What, what do they do? What's God uh, shaping in them? What happens when there's a leadership crisis? What happens when uh, they're not sure uh, how to act and what it means to live like the people of God? Each one of these things are part of the formational power of God. But before we get there, I think it's appropriate for us to ask two questions. One is, am I, even though I'm living in freedom, running back to Egypt? Am I finding myself deep in my psyche saying, I know that I'm free, but I just want that quick fix. I just want that need met. I know it's abusive, and I know it's oppressive, and I know it can't ultimately give me what I want, but in this moment, it's what I want. And so I choose to go back into slavery. If that's where we are, the, the only pathway out is speaking that truth, saying it out loud, and starting to move into where God's actually calling us, that process of confession and repentance and moving forward. It sounds so simple, but how many of us have spent some time confessing very quietly in our head or in our journal and find no actual transformation. We're invited to say the words out loud. That's why God calls us to confession with one another. And so it may be that you find yourself in that position where you're saying, I just need to speak those words out loud. I need to say it. And if that's where you are, I want to invite you to do that. And I want you to not feel bad because it took Israel 40 plus years. In fact, you could say um, the, the majority of the history of the nation of Israel to get Egypt out of them. It takes time, so don't beat yourself up. Just start to move forward. Now is the time to start to move forward. Or it may be that you're saying, I, I don't feel drawn by any of that, I don't feel like I'm running back to Egypt, but what I do feel like is I am not hearing from the Spirit the way that I need to. I, I'm, I, I, I don't see the pillar of fire. I don't sense the draw of the Spirit, and I need to experience Him. And if that's where you are, we have an opportunity every time that we gather, and not just on Sundays, every time that we gather together as the people of God to pray over one another, that God would fill us with his spirit. Ephesians 5 tells us that not, not just that we're to be filled once, but that we are to keep on being filled with the spirit. That the filling of the spirit is something that is a, a, a present continual. It's happening now, and it's happening now, and it's happening now. And so when we feel as though we're not filled, we just simply come back and we say, fill me more. I, I need more. I need to be filled again. And so you may find yourself in either of those positions. And if that's where you are, I would just want to invite you to respond, to come and to say, God, I, I, I long for you. I long to live in the freedom that you've called me into and to be formed into your likeness. And I want to start that journey, continue that journey right now. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come. They're going to um, play a couple songs that give us an opportunity to respond. And as they do, 
I'll, as I often do, invite you to respond uh, up here at the altars. Uh, this altar rail is a great place for you if you want to have someone pray over you. We would love as uh, elders and pastors and intercessors to be able to just pray God's grace over you. And so uh, if you come up here, someone will come and pray with you. And if you're someone who uh, is willing to pray over someone and you see someone come up here and you feel God prompting you, feel free to come up and to pray with them. On this side of the altar is just a place for you to be alone with God, for you to come and just say, God, I, I need you to meet me here. I don't have so much that I need to say out loud. I just need you to meet me. And if that's where you're at, I want to encourage you to come onto the side and we'll just leave you alone. I'll pray silently over you from afar and give you an opportunity to, to bring your heart before the Lord. It's a real turning point in the history of Israel. And I think a real turning point in our understanding of what it means to be free, that we would be shaped, formed, sanctified by the presence of the Spirit. And so let's invite him to do that work in us. Jesus, Take what I have imperfectly said and with clarity and precision speak it into our hearts and our minds. Help us to be people who are not simply justified, although we praise you and thank you and are grateful for that work. But God, help us to also be people who are sanctified, who are becoming more and more like you. And so God, lead us on that path of formation. Continue by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to lead us forward so that we would know the path that you desire for us to walk in and that we would walk in it. And so Jesus, do this work in us, we pray. In your name, amen.